Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Very, very good afternoon to you and welcome. Lovely to be in your company again and coming to you hopefully loud and clear through the High FM newly restored transmitter. It's wonderful to have you uh, together with us. Great to be talking to you. It is just 10 minutes past two on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. It is the 17th day in the month of Shvat. Yep, believe it or not, we're already into the latter part of the month of Shvat. Tu Bishvat, Chamishasa Bishvat was just this last uh, Monday, so a couple of days ago. Chamishasa Bishvat, Tu Bishvat, New Year for the trees or the fruits, which we've discussed before. But now moving into the latter part of the month of Shvat, we're kind of in this uh, transitional period between um, the downtime, if you wish, of um, Tevet, we now have Shvat. We then are going to very soon, in fact, in just 13 days' time, 12, 13 days, we're going to be into the month of Adar. We know that Mishenechnas Adar Marbim Basimcha. When the month of Adar comes in, we increase in our joy. So it's not that long to go. For the real sparkling, joyous celebrations of um, Adar, and then that in itself leading to Nisan, the months of Simcha, of Geula, of redemption, because there was one kind of redemption with the month of Adar, with Purim. There's another kind of redemption with the month of Nisan, with Pesach, and all that those two Chagim, that those two special festivals celebrate. So we begin kind of, I think, from the second part, the second half of the month of Shvat, we start increasing kind of heading up to the starting blocks of much more Simcha than we have right now. Remember, Simcha is the mark of being Jewish. Simcha is, joy is, the, the stature, the status, the default setting of Judaism and Jews all the time. Uh, we're told, if the Hashem Simcha, our service of God needs to be with joy. Our prayers need to be with joy. Our our learning needs to be with joy. Our performance of mitzvahs needs to be with joy. And even, strangely enough, the things that we don't find that comfortable should also be done with a joyous notion, with a an undercurrent of joy, with a happiness that uh, pervades them all, with a positive outlook that even in dark times we need to look up, we need to be positive, we need to look forward to uh, great and wonderful times that will follow. And we're kind of at that juncture right now having passed through the first part of the month of Shvat, now into the latter part, now looking forward to Adar, which will be followed by Nisan. We're really into, let's call it the business end of Simcha, um, and that kind of injection that it's going to give us for this year. We had the privilege over this last weekend of celebrating in our community the arrival of a new Sefer Torah, a Sefer Torah, a new Torah scroll, and while we know that Torah scrolls have been around for a long, long time, the actual Torah, of course, is not new. The Torah scroll is new. It had been specially commissioned, specially written, very beautiful presentation of the Torah scroll. And, of course, it's a day of great simcha. And we're told that the, presenta- the day of the presentation of the Torah scroll is like a chag. It's a festival, a festive occasion for the entire city. So even though the Torah is presented in one community, in one uh, shul, 
It is, um, it's completed and presented, brought into the shul, placed in the Aruna Kodesh, placed in the Ark. Um, the opportunity there is to be able to read it as often as possible during, especially during the first year. And we make sure that, that, um, Torah, uh, its arrival is done with a tremendous fanfare. There is celebration. And the celebration includes hakafot, that we have hakafas, like we would do on Simchas Torah. The same verses are called out, the same idea of circling the bimah, the same idea of singing and dancing, the same idea of uh, Simchas Torah, although we obviously do not complete the reading and start the reading all over again like we do on Simchas Torah, but um, all of that kind of celebratory fanfare with the uh, uh, food and uh, simcha and making a sudat mitzvah out of it and so on. All of that, of course, um, pertains to and happens when you have the siyum and achnosa, the completion and the arrival, the bringing in of a new Torah scroll. And so we were privileged to be able to celebrate that all. And many, many people from the community came along and participated. A wonderful, wonderful occasion. There's something that is kind of a a very poignant and emotional moment um, of the arrival of the Torah in a shul. And that is that the members of the community take whatever Torah scrolls there are in the Oren Kodesh, in the Ark, before the arrival of this new one. And they kind of bring out, well, they certainly do bring out the Torah scrolls to public area. So the Torah scrolls taken out through the front gates of the shul, and they kind of form an honor god, a god of honor, uh, for the new Torah which arrives, and they then accompany it into the shul, and then they're placed together in the Arona Kodesh, in the Ark. This is something that is traditionally done whenever a new Torah is brought into a particular community, into a particular shul. A very beautiful moment, something very, very Moving to see these other Torahs come out to greet their new Torah that is coming. And, of course, there is so much symbolism and so much um, that we can learn from this. Uh, first of all, the idea of welcoming in the new guest, so to speak. These Torahs are resident. They've been there. They've occupied the space. They're saying, you know what, we're making place for you too. It's on a very, very simplistic kind of a level. But there is something about the Torahs coming out that has a deep and profound and beautiful significance. And I hope you'll be able to see something very special about how there's a particular significance to today. Today, the 17th day in the month of Shvat, celebrates an occasion where the Torah scrolls came out to greet and great miracles happened. So it is a powerful moment, and I would like to tell you the story of what happened with the Torah scrolls that came out to greet during a significant moment in our history and how great and wonderful wonderful miracles happened there. So let's focus our attention back in time to the secular year of 1421. And we're going to travel to Spain and particularly to (coughs) an area called Aragon, Aragon in Spain, which was one of the provinces, if you wish, of Spain at the time. And there, a particular 
city, the capital city, which was known as Saragossa. Saragossa being the capital city of Aragon in Spain. And there happened to be a large Jewish community there. There were many shuls there. There was a, a powerful and very structured and very well-organized Jewish community at the time. Spain was a great center of uh, Jewish life at that time. And we all know, unfortunately, that um, sometime later there was the Spanish Inquisition. The Jews were chased out of there and murdered um, and so on. Terrible things happened later. But at this time, 1421, things were incredible for the Jewish community there. And the Jewish community in Spain had a tradition that whenever the king came out for a parade, so it seems to have been quite a common thing for kings to have parades, that whenever the king um, came and celebrated a specific occasion and there was a parade through the Jewish quarter, through the streets there, that the leaders of the Jewish community would come out to greet him and they would carry with them the Torahs, of their particular shuls. So imagine you had a whole lot of shuls. Imagine here in Johannesburg, one of the Jewish areas with a number of different communities, a number of different shuls. You had this idea of the welcoming. So it's like a sign of how you welcome a king, how you welcome royalty, that the Torahs and Torah scrolls were actually taken out, held in their casing. Remember, um, the Sephardi, the Spanish a tradition of a Torah is not just that it was in a mantle, just in a, a cover, but that actually it was in a case, much like you see the cases in the uh, Torahs that most of us see, for instance, when we go to the Kotel, but you can certainly see them in many Sephardi communities that you have very beautiful um, cases that the Torahs are held in. So you can't actually see the scroll. You're seeing the case from the outside. And these were all carried out into the streets to welcome the king. We'll carry on with that story right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Welcome back. And to continue our story, we're talking about the Jews of Saragossa, the capital city of Aragon in 1421, who had the tradition that whenever the king passed through the streets, on one of his victory parades, on one of his celebratory parades, celebrating special occasions in Spain that the Jewish community would come out to greet him carrying their Torah scrolls. There was only one problem that um, we have to point out, was that the Jews felt that carrying the Torah scrolls out into the street to welcome the king we may be showing a little disrespect to the Torah scrolls by carrying them out into the street. And they felt that it's, you know, all well and good to carry out the Torah scroll to greet another Torah. It's all very well to carry out the Torah scrolls into the street, perhaps <laughs> when the time comes to greet the king, Mashiach. But to just go out into the street to greet the non-Jewish king of that neighborhood was this something that they should, in inverted commas, um, degrade the Torah scrolls with? Should they take them out? Do they have the wherewithal, the ability, the halachic backing to be able to do that? We know that the moving of a Torah scroll from one place to the other is something that we hold very dear. We don't just do it. We can't just 
take a Torah scroll around. One of the things that we know from the moving of a Torah scroll is if you move it from one place to the other, officially you should only move it to read it in a, another place and to read it at least three times. Um, anybody who's had the experience, unfortunately, of having to organize a Shiva house, a house for Avelim to sit in for the week of Shiva, will know that this is one of the Regulations, one of the things that we apply, that we only will take a Torah if we can read it three times and then it warrants moving it. We can't just move it around. And, of course, the um, allowance that if you're going to be putting it in a beautiful Oren Kodesh, if you're going to be putting it into something that's respectable, that uh, there are some who say that that is okay to only read it once or twice. But be that as it may, we take very seriously the idea of transporting a Torah. It's not something that you can just move around the Torah at your own will. So they felt here, were they crossing any lines by taking the Torahs out to greet the king? And then they came up with a great solution. The Torah scrolls were housed in these cases, and the cases were not transparent. The cases were not, it wasn't going to be visible if there was or there wasn't anything inside. And so it became the tradition in Saragossa that the Jews, quietly, without announcing it, without telling anybody, would remove the Torahs from the cases. And when they came out to greet the king, they were actually, in effect, holding Empty cases, the empty Torah cases, the Torah casings with all the bells and whistles were being carried out to greet the king. And the Jews lined the streets and they stood there and nobody knew any better. It was all fine and all right and all good. But as fate would have it and as these things happen, the king had an advisor and the advisor's name actually was Marcus, Marcus was the king's advisor. And this king's advisor wanted to try and rise up in the annals of the king's hierarchy. He wanted to get his cabinet post, if you wish, all tied up and sorted out. And one of the things that he didn't like was something called Jews. He didn't like the Jews. He was a rabid anti-Semite himself, and he did not like the Jews, and he tried to make every effort to catch them out. So it is said that um, he tried to trip them up by uh, saying to the king, these Jews don't, uh, they should be expelled, they don't pay their taxes properly. And when that was checked out, it was found not to be true that Jews at the time and in that region were very, very loyal in their payment of taxes, and they were very good at uh, ensuring that they did everything that their community obligations demanded from them and that they kept up with everything that the government (coughs) deemed necessary for them to do, they were very law-abiding and great citizens. And so that kind of plan fell apart. But then someone brought to the attention of Marcus that the Jews actually were cheating in inverted commas, the king every time they brought out the cases, that in fact when they brought out the cases of the Sifrei Torah, the cases were empty. And wasn't this the height of an insult? What were they (coughs) actually saying? What were they actually saying to the king by this terrible insult, bringing out empty cases? Were they saying that he didn't deserve the Torah? Were they saying that um, 
you know, it is. I mean, we all know that. You know, it's kind of giving a king a a gift or giving somebody a gift that's uh, you give them the empty box and there's nothing inside. And this much more so because everybody knew how sacred the Torah scrolls were. So isn't it fascinating that even this Marcus and these anti-Semites um, thought about the fact that if the Jews aren't bringing out their Torah, that this is um, something that uh, we've got to we've got to take them to task about. But um, he toddled off Marcus, and he told the king that this, in fact, is what the Jews were doing. And the king didn't want to believe him. He said, "Listen, they're law-abiding citizens. I am not going to." do anything to hurt them. Uh, Marcus then trumped up charges against an individual, it seems, and he said, look, all the Jews misbehaved, and the king managed to point out to him that it was just one, and you can't blame all the Jews for the actions of one. But then Marcus said, you know what, I've got a great plan. Why don't we do this? The king is entitled to ask the Jews what they're carrying inside their um, uh, their Torah cases when next we have a parade instead of having a whole interrogation and instead of spying on the Jews and instead of I don't know what you could do in those days putting in security cameras to catch them out uh, when they removed the uh, Sifrei Torah from their cases um, instead of doing all of that why don't we just catch them out at the next parade why doesn't the king just walk up to or if he was on horseback or in his carriage, say to one of the Jews standing there as they lined the streets, please, I'd like to see what's inside your Torah case. Let's have a look. What is inside? What does the Torah look like? Um, and in that way, we'll be able to catch them kind of red-handed. Isn't it a brilliant plan? The king says, okay, he'll go along with it because he truly believed that uh, the Jews wouldn't be cheating on him. They wouldn't be doing anything untoward. He didn't believe this Marcus and all his accusations. So he said, okay, let's see. Now Marcus said, you know, if the Jews are caught out, we should actually get rid of them. They're cheats, they're thieves, they're uh, not good people, and uh, we're going to have endless trouble from them, and uh, we should get rid of them. And perhaps, you know, for the heinous crime of insulting the king by bringing out empty Torah cases instead of Torah Torot themselves, why don't we um, actually get rid of them by hanging them? Let's uh, really, really destroy this Jewish people and these people who are perpetrating these heinous acts. Well, it came the time of the king's parade. A parade was going to be held through the streets of Saragossa, and they were going to go through and past the Jewish ghetto. And the scene was set for this whole story now to unwind and to actually take place. And Marcus triumphantly was right next to the king, and at an appointed moment he commanded the king, or he pushed the king, prompted the king to ask one of the Jews there to open the case. But let's now just go back to what happened the night before the parade. The night before the parade, one of the shamoshim, now a shamus is something we have kind of uh, not gotten used to or we've kind of dispensed with in our communities. The shamus was known as the beadle, the man, the guy who looked after the shul, kind of the shul caretaker, but he was more than that. He was the one who made sure that the Torahs were ready. He was the one that made sure that the Sidurim were packed away. He was the one that made sure that the Aliyot for Shabbos were properly distributed and so on. A real 
shul caretaker and then some and usually these people were the darlings of the community and uh, incredibly um, necessary in many of the shuls and many of the communities well one of these shamoshim on the night before the parade had a dream. Now, it was the job of the shamas to actually remove the Sifre Torah from their casings and have all the casings standing ready for the community members to come and take out. So the Balabatim, the uh, chairman, the president, whoever it was, would come into the shul. They would just pick up the case and they would walk out into the street. And the shamas had had to have these cases and uh, Torah separated for them to just take on the day of the parade. And so this particular shamas had done that already. And um, he had gone home, he was now sleeping, and in the middle of the night he was disturbed by a dream. And in the dream, a great sagely, saintly-looking face, figure, came to him in the dream and said to him, there's something terrible that's about to happen, and it's of paramount importance that you put the Torahs back in their cases. The Torahs must be in their cases for the parade tomorrow. He woke up. Um, from this scary dream, he was in a cold sweat, he didn't quite know what to do. He didn't know if he should tell anybody what he should do, and he decided that the best possible action that he could take in order not to embarrass himself was, and in order not to hurt anybody's feelings and do something wrong, was this dream was so powerful and it was so pushy and it was so um, um, convincing that he walked to the shul in the cold, dark night, he opened up the doors. He opened the Oran Kodesh. He took the Torahs and he put them back in their cases and he let the Torahs standing in their cases for the Balabatim, for the members of the community, of the committee, whoever they were, to come in in the morning, take up the Torah cases, as they thought, but now it was going to be Torahs, and to go and stand and line the streets and get ready for the king to come by. This is what he did. And so imagine the shock when... The king commands the first person standing there to open his Torah case. Him holding it, believing that he's holding an empty case, thinking now that everything is going to be exposed and that possibly the whole Jewish people will be ridiculed and at worst they will be slaughtered, they'll be put to death, they'll be banished from the land. Imagine that thought, imagine what they felt, imagine what he was thinking, but the kings ordered it. He had to open the case, and gingerly he unlocks the case, lifts off the latches, and opens, waiting kind of for the shock, the horror, the damnation, and inside there's a Torah. Inside there's a Torah. And the king takes a look, and he says, Marcus, you said no Torahs. Look inside. There's a Torah. So Marcus says, well, maybe there was one, there was a mistake. They opened the next one, and the next one, and then the one after that. And then amazingly... They opened the Torahs of all the shuls, because remember there wasn't only one shul. This particular shamus had gone just to his shul to put the Torahs back into their cases. All the Torahs had been, all the Torahs had been restored to their rightful place in their case, and the cases and the Torahs were standing out in the street on that particular day that the king inspected. And the king then turned to Marcus and he said, you've hatched a lie. It's been a terrible lie that you have told, the very gallows that you have made, the very idea that you had to exterminate, to get rid of all the Jews. Unfortunately, we're going to visit upon you. Marcus was immediately seized, and he met his bitter end at that particular time. 
And this is the story of what happened, the miracle of the Torahs in Saragossa. And I'll be back after this just to tell you what the link is and how it's important that we understand the significance of it on this particular day. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Just before the break, we were talking about this amazing story about the miracle that happened in Saragossa in 1421, um, an amazing event that turned out so beautifully for the Jews, um, an incredible, incredible thing. The amazing thing was that each one of those Shamosim confirmed that that night they had had the same dream. Every one of them had seen this figure, and they all conferred and decided that it must have been Eliyahu Hanavi. It was the prophet Elijah who had come to each one of the Shamoshim, each one of the Shamases, each one of the beadles on the night before the king's parade and told them something terrible was going to happen. And the only defense that the Jewish people had was to make sure that their Torahs, their Torah scrolls were actually within those cases, that they were walking out into the street to herald the arrival of the king, to lord and praise the king, to stand in the street. It's an amazing story because it's not only this great and wondrous miracle that happened. It's not only the way that it transpired, but it also happens to be something of huge significance in that the Jewish people were being told that your Torah is your best defense. When we think about it in terms of our lives, if we live our lives according to Torah principles, we're guaranteed that we'll live good, honest, proper, upstanding, correct lives. And nothing will befall us. If we think about all the things that have and do befall us, nine times out of ten, it is because our commitment to our Torah and our mitzvahs and so on is lacking. And the world out there doesn't like that. The world out there finds fault with that. When we're committed to our Torah, recognizing what it stands for and how important, how significant it is to us and our entire spiritual and physical defense system, um, this is something that is not only obligatory, it's miraculous, it's special, and it is fundamental to our survival, to our faith, and to us as a people, as a Jewish people in today, as well as in the future, in our time going forward. But there is something more to it than that, and that is that this great miracle took place on the 17th of Shvat. Today is the 17th of Shvat. Today, in 1421, that great miracle of the Torah scrolls in Saragossa took place. And how I know it is because it's written up in books that the Saragossa community, every year on the 17th and the 18th of Shvat, would celebrate a kind of a Purim. They called it Purim Saragossa. They celebrated a Purim, just like we have a Purim coming up in a month from now. They celebrated Purim on the 17th and 18th of Shvat, just for that town, for that city, for that place, for Saragossa. They wrote a Megillah, they wrote out the story, they used to read it, and they would do a lot of the things like we do on Purim to celebrate, to commemorate Purim Saragossa, this great deliverance that Hashem had showed them, how they were delivered from the clutches of that heinous anti-Semite and the king who could have literally gotten rid of all of them in one fell swoop for their 
um, neglect and they're not placing the Torahs, the Torah scrolls in those cases to go out to, to greet the king. So a great and powerful day, a day of great miracles in the history of that town. And of course, since the whole Jewish people are so integrally connected, if we think about the power in the 17th of Shvat, the power in today, it certainly has to carry some of the weight and some of the significance of how the Jewish community there were saved, how today has a semblance of Purim in the um, idea of getting closer as we are now, just one month away from Purim, and of course the idea of how one gula, one redemption, leads to another, how we hope that this little redemption will lead us to much greater ones. And as, as our simcha increases, so we'll ultimately be marching with joy, with our Torahs, with our mitzvahs, with everything that is precious to us, when the King Mashiach arrives very, very soon in our time. Be back with you to sum up right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. One of the things that we have stated in Jewish law, in halacha, is that Purim has to be one month before Pesach. Now that sounds to be a little silly if you think about the fact that Purim is in Adar and Pesach is in Nisan. What does it mean that it has to be one month before Pesach? Well, we do know that every so often, uh, every two or three years, there is something called a leap year. And a leap year gives us two Adars. And this is where the question arises, in which Adar do we actually celebrate Purim? And the decision is that Purim has to be one month before Pesach. So it's got to be closer to Pesach rather than further away. In other words, Purim is celebrated in the second Adar in a leap year. This year there's no question about it because we don't have a leap year. We have a regular Adar and Purim is celebrated in the middle of the month of Adar as it always is. When you have two Adars, the debate about first or second gives us the answer that it's got to be in the second one. Purim needs to be close to Pesach. And the reason is Nismach Geula Ligula. One redemption needs to be placed close to the other. The redemption of Purim needs to be close to the redemption of Pesach. They interleading, they're interlocked, they lead one to the other. Now, if we think about it and we go all the way back to the concept of celebrating any of these dates, of thinking about our redemption from Mitzrayim, from Egypt, to thinking about our redemption from Haman and Achashverosh in the Purim story, or if we focus on what we spoke about today, the idea of Purim Saragosa, we've got to know that Nismach Geula Li Geula, we hope that one Geula, one redemption leads to the other. Redemption is something that we should be feeling, that we should be living with, that we should really ingest, imbibe, experience and feel because it is something that is just waiting to happen for each and every one of us with the coming of Mashiach. May that happen very speedily in our time. I want to wish you a great week up ahead, a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat, a great Shabbos. And please, God, it will be a time in which we can open our eyes and see, visualize, really practically understand what it means to be living in a Mashiach state, in a Mashiach time, and hopefully very, very soon, having that geula, hashlema vahamitis, the actual complete geula, the actual complete redemption happening immediately and now. Take care. Look forward to being back with you again, same time, same place, next week on another episode of Judaism 101.9.